Welcome to Reconstructed Faith, a podcast where we talk about truth you can build your life on. We hope to dive into the hard conversations of life and faith and seek out reasonable, substantive answers. My name is Colson Lechner, and I am joined by Chris Sherrod, Chris Legg, and Brent Starnes. This is Reconstructed Faith. Well, welcome back to the Reconstructed Faith Podcast. My name is Colson Lechner, and uh, in, in studio with me is Chris Legg, and Chris Sherrod is joining. Uh, welcome, guys. And we're gonna to just here. we're gonna jump right right in because um, Chris Sherrod is actually gonna be traveling to Tyler from Dallas doing <laughs> stuff with his church. Um, so we want to make the best use of his time. But uh, we are we are kind of transitioning um, right now with our topics into more of a um, I don't know talking more about about sexuality and that conversation with the Bible. Yeah. I think when I, one thing that comes to mind, uh, actually two things that I, my knee jerk reaction of what I want to do is just jump to the really immediate pressing issue of how do I, you know, explain this or how do I respond to this? It's kind of like when I do a parenting class, it's almost like you've got to back up and see the bigger picture and reminder of your role as a parent and how does God treat you as a parent and, um, your overall home environment because so many parents just want to jump into how do I make my three-year-old go to bed, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, yeah. so I think that it's easy to want just to jump right into all the details. And so I, I think what we wanted to do is maybe back up a little bit and just see the bigger picture of God is the one who designed sex. Like this is not an invention of man. It's not something that we discovered off on the side that, you know, um, he had no idea about, he's like, what did you guys figure out over there? What are you doing? <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like behind his back, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and even, I mean, it's the way like the book of Romans unfolds. Like right. you don't get to any real imperatives until chapter 12, like any specifics right. on do this or don't do this. Because Paul is building up your theology before you get to your activity. And so in the same way with all of this, um, people are so offended and upset about you know, Christian's view of same-sex marriage or attraction or um, transgender stuff, but we need to back up and be able to have a reasoned response of just sexuality and and how God designed us and the beauty of that and to celebrate that instead of always sounding like we're the negative, we always have, we're always saying no, we're always the ones saying we're wanting to, you know, rain in your parade or or whatever. Well, that's a really good a, a good analogy, a good picture of we need to back up because, because as we've been on this topic, this heading, uh, the adventure of <clears throat> is the Bible immoral by today's standards, and and we've gone through the ones we've been through, the answer seems to have been over and over again, and maybe we'll hit another one of these we've just not thought of it yet, that is, no, it's not. It's It's that what people think the Bible says is immoral by today's standards, or what people abused the Bible to do was was immoral by today's standards. But as we've realized going into, we're about to discuss sexuality, which, which you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, sex has always been important to humans. Um, and, and we can see like, you know, biblically other materials, other, even ancient, I mean, well, some of the few ancient writings that have survived from other cultures have been sexual in nature. Um, and so, Anyway, so when we look at this and we we see how important sex is and how powerful sex is, 
And then you have a guy like Freud who, you know, came along 150 years ago and said, I mean, sex is it. Like sex is the ultimate source of happiness for humans. And that what well, what's well actualized people begin to realize is my whole life should be about genital sex because that's, that is the core value, the core happiness and the core joy of humanity. Um, I so, don't know about you, but when I go ahead, what are you going to say? So does that, does that constitute the sexual revolution of what you're talking about? Or when you say the sexual revolution, do you mean something else? When the sexual revolution is a movement that's been happening in the Western world um, and then spread to the rest of the world in many ways, but st- really started in the Western world. And, and I think it actually started more like in the romantic era um, in, in, uh, in Europe so where that, you have so this that delineation. So that didn't necessarily start with Freud, though. Is what no, Freud kind of wrapped up the romantic era, and oh, it okay. went from okay. being sex is is only about romance, and and this division between sex, romantic sex, and procreation sex, and this like like it's very it's really kind of twisted. Even though there's a lot of you know beautiful art and stuff from that era, you also end up with this weird like true sexuality is never expressed or. Um, like that, that's that, that real, real love is never experienced. Like it's, it, there's a lot of weird mixed messaging from that time period. Um, everything was sub Rosa. That's where we get that language, even where people carried certain color roses meant to kind of communicate what their romantic status was and different people would give flowers and the color. And it was all very mm. secretive and yet not secretive. It was like this, the best known secret was all these things. And it really centered in France and grew out from there. And it was in, at war with the Protestant Reformation and, and so all that I'm, stuff. So wait, so, but if you're, you're talking about. I, the I, romantic I, era. Like, but I don't understand. Like I haven't, I haven't heard of any of the roses or anything. If I want to learn more <laughs> yeah. about that, what should I look up? That um, way we, don't, we can, that way we're not talking about this the whole time, but if. Yeah. Um, you, did you say sub Rosa? Is that what yeah, you said? Sub Rosa beneath the roses. Okay. Um, and maybe our listeners know exactly what you're talking about. They may not think in terms. So romanticism yes. is the idea. Um, romanticism was in its peak, um, like in the early 1800s, first half of the 1800s. Okay. And you, uh, individualism, the individual uh-huh. person finding their role and enjoyment in life. And it built towards, um, you know, that, 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 that idea that romance, sexuality, uh-huh. And even the repression of those things and all those kind of, it all built from modern thinking, not, <laughs> now I'm going to do another one. Yeah. Did we do, we did a, an episode on pre-modern, modern, and post-modern, yeah, right? Yeah, we did. Okay, so you might have to go back for some of that. So dear, as modernism is gaining ground, and just before post-modernism begins to hit is when you're talking about. So a lot of the Romantic era literature, the Carpe Diem theme, um, the pre-Civil War writings in America. Okay. And... Um, a lot of that kind of stuff, the French Revolution, the American uh, War for Independence, like these all kind of overlapped. Okay. Um, anyway. Okay, so that's that's what we're talking about. That's that. Many people kind of think that's where the sexual revolution really began. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and then what we've seen is this is this progressive, so progressive attitude from traditional Western Christian Judeo Christian values of sexuality, which is. It's powerful, therefore there are rules um, assigned to it. Yeah. Just like guns are powerful, so there are rules. Cars are powerful, so there are rules. Explosives are powerful, so there's are rules. Sex is powerful, so there are rules. Um, guidelines for fun having, as we would say at camp, right? So 
um, because it's so powerful. I te- when I teach it to my children, I teach it like a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, fire is life-giving in the proper place and life-taking in an improper place. And so, um, you know, in, yeah. a, in, a, in, a, in an oven or stove or a fireplace or a campfire, it's life-giving. Uh, on the kitchen table, it's life-taking. You know, run, running through the house, it's life-taking. Your car's on fire, it's life-taking. So powerful things are, can be good and bad yeah. by definition. Okay. Chris, would you say, so I'm, I'm trying to follow, I mean, even helping with what Colson's thinking of. Have you ever, do you remember the book, Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave? You ever seen that book? I actually have not. That sounds fantastic. Seven men who rule the yeah. world from the grave. Is that what you said? Yeah. It came out in the early 90s, a guy named Dave Breeze, but he talks about like Darwin, Freud, Marx, um, Kierkegaard, like right. how their influences in the 1800s then impacted the 20th century and onto where we are today. Uh-huh. But um, I feel like because because Colson asked, like, was Freud original in those things? And it's the same kind of thing. Like Darwin isn't the first person to come up with, you know, Darwinism. Right. But it came at a time where people, it was ripe in the culture to receive it. And it's the same thing with Freud. Like it, it it's it right. Cause I would say on the tail end of kind of the enlightenment, we're getting more and more into what we think is humans. Right. And we're elevating more and more of man's opinion and philosophies. And, um, Anyways, my point was, where does the sexual revolution come from? Uh, uh, These ideas have been around, I mean, from the beginning as far as how do we define ourselves. But what happened, what you're describing is the gradual shift. It's like the triumph of the modern self book. Like, you know, where do you start? Right, right. um, Yeah, exactly. You you start in the Garden of Eden. Like Jim Dennison, yeah, where do you start with whatever? But I would just say with Freud, that came on the scene when... We were very much into man, man's philosophy and intellect and all of these psychologists and psychiatrists. Like those are the ones that we're really going to listen to now. And it just came at a time where it was scratching an itch that was perfect. Yeah, I mean, kind of the zeitgeist of the time, kind of like this. Yeah, is, it just so, it just had a bigger impact. Um, okay. You know, than okay. In another time of history, but yes. it didn't really take fruit. Well, I think most people when you say sexual revolution, they're like, oh, you mean the '60s. But you can see uh, right, right. Of this yeah, the 1860s, the 1760s. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. And uh, yeah. And so this is a, that process of that, that the fundamental happiness of life comes through sexual encounter. And I don't, I don't mean to be crass, but the way Freud talked about it was genital sex was that that's, that's where the ultimate source of human thriving and happiness. Well, if that's accurate, and by the way, as a psychologist, there's almost nothing of Freud's material that has survived research. Um, all of his children, child development material has been debunked. Um, he never should have been listened to in regards to any of these things <clears throat> for the most part. I mean, all truth is God's truth and anything he uncovered that's accurate is still accurate, but there just wasn't much accurate. He uncovered. Um, this is a man who never really worked with children at all. He worked ex- almost exclusively with middle, middle to upper class, middle aged white women um, and no, no other audiences hardly at all, and yet wrote massive theories about childhood development, um, and really had no business doing any of that. And there's and, much, and was accepted, and and it was. Right. I mean, students are still having to memorize them today, which I think is unfortunate. I mean, yes, we need to know who Freud is, um, 
But and we need to understand what his theories were. But I, I think they we still in the psychological world we overemphasize his material because it turns out most of it was just wrong. Um, Interesting. But uh, but so here we have this idea that sexuality is the ultimate source of meaning and happiness. So that starts a revolution. I mean, you can imagine that concept begins a revolution when you have um, radical individualism or um, uh, what that's called. You know, th- my job in life is to find my source of ultimate happiness for me. And so, which is a God-given right, according to, you know, the Declaration of Independence, pursuit of happiness, um, which I agree with. But anyway, but that's a, that's a separate conversation. But then you have this, therefore... Any barrier between me and enjoying myself sexually must therefore be bad. Huh. Yeah. And so, the, because it's repressing me, it is suppressing what would make me happy. This would make me happy. And in Christianity, we have this brilliant book called Ecclesiastes, in which you have Solomon spending his fortunes, and one of the things he tests under the sun um, is sex. And, and in, massively, in massive ways that Freud probably couldn't have even imagined— I imagine Solomon, Freud did not know all of Solomon's sexual techniques and experiences. Um, and yet at the end of his life, Solomon's like, it's all a big waste of time. And I can tell you as a therapist, I've, I've seen that in people's lives. I had a, a client years ago who was a, a Chippendales stripper, a male stripper. And, and he was coming to see me for counseling because he had now been married for two or three years to a woman he absolutely adored. Um, he had married later in life absolutely adored her. She was like the most wonderful thing in his life, but he was kind of over sex and like she wanted to have sex. And he was like, "Ah, I kind of already have that t-shirt. I've had sex with hundreds, if not thousands of women in the past. And, and so we had to reevaluate the purpose and meaning of sex from the ground up. I mean, it had been totally corrupted for him. It was like a gangrenous body part that was just gross and dying and so we had to start all over again. And the biblical concept of sex is what freed him to begin loving and enjoying sex with his wife again. Because it turns out Freud was wrong. Genital sex will never bring a sense of ultimate satisfaction. Momentary, yeah. sure. But, uh, but ultimate and big picture, no. And so then where do we go for guidance in regards to sexuality, the practice of sexuality and what's, what's, what's healthy? What is a fireplace? Yeah. And, and what was, is the bedroom floor? Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. what's that's where is the fire good and where is the fire bad? And that's good. Hey, um, yeah, uh, Chris, I know you probably need to leave soon. Is there anything else you want to add before you, um, before you have to get off? Yeah, well, I was just going to add. Outside of the Bible, there's again a, a ongoing evidence that the Bible is right as far as its view. There, I read a, a study that was done by this Oxford and Cambridge social anthropologist. Uh, named Joseph Unwin. Um, and he was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I think he died in 1936, but he did this massive study of six major civilizations and then even some lesser societies covering like 5,000 years of history. And because of his background, he was expecting to find the support of Freud's theory that civilizations are basically destroying themselves by restricting sex too much Oh wow! And all of his evidence, all of his evidence pointed in the exact opposite. That um, is, he examined the sexual behavior and its effect on society. Found basically that sexually monogamous cultures prosper, while the ones that restrain, um, they fail to restrain. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They they either remain primitive or they decline. Was kind of his point. Like if you're not if you're not restraining monogamous marriage, 
you're either going to decline or it's going to anyway. So just to Chris's point, that's an example there of the evidence is going in the opposite. And as we would expect is more in line with, you know, with what God designed. Yeah. Right. And for so I think it's a great idea. This session, this conversation will will continue on even even when Chris has to bail. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. In regards to what is what does the Bible teach about it, and what is the root? So, I want to give yeah. you before you have to bail any any as we start that conversation. Where do you start that when you're teaching on it, and then when you when you got to go go, and we'll we'll keep going. Well, this is going to sound so cliche to go back to Genesis, but. When Jesus, when Jesus was asked about <laughs> yes. like, the issue of marriage and divorce, he went back to the beginning. He's like, uh, haven't you read? And yeah. he went back to God's original design. And I just think that's going to be the, the ones that you've heard me say so many times is God, the designer and definer of reality and morality and especially sexuality. And if he is, then I need to figure out, well, what does he clearly say? What are things that we've added or made up or subtracted from? And then just get back to what and we can along the way discover and talk about yeah, this is why it's beneficial and we can see that but i think a lot of people really are just biblically ignorant or illiterate today in knowing that the bible is actually clear when i was a youth pastor sadly i remember students who wanted proof from me that the bible actually you know said anything about this because they just and these are kids like raised in the church and i was like right. wow okay well let's go back and look at all these passages and make sure it's crystal clear, like you can't get around it biblically that the Bible has something to say about this. I think people come up with other reasons why they don't want to accept it, but I think an honest reading of it is pretty clear. Yeah. The the passage that Chris is referencing there, Matthew 19, um, when when starting in verse 3, when the Pharisees come to test him about divorce, and Jesus says, have you not read... So he's mm-hmm. kind of he's kind of poking them a little bit there. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So there's a there's a statement from Genesis one. Mm-hmm. He then connects it to a statement from Genesis two. He made them male and female. That's Genesis one. I think it's like twenty seven. <clears throat> then it well, actually probably has a cross reference right here. Uh, twenty seven, and then said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here's an interesting thing for this part of our conversation as we talk about biblical concepts of sexuality is there is a decision that people are going to get to make. And, and this is a decision that God gives us the freedom to make, uh, at least for the most part, which is, am I going to go with my unto intuitions and understanding or the world's intuitions and understanding or whatever, or am I willing to submit to or see authoritative um, God's in input on this from his word. And that is a decision that every human being has to make because, as we've said, building up towards today, they don't always overlap. And what now we're running into is, is we're going to run into some examples where modern morality and biblical morality don't overlap. And, and then there's going to be a decision to make. And <clears throat> the discussion then is kind of who's, who's right about this, who knows what they're talking about, and years ago, you can you can actually watch this on our podcast when I had uh, the Q&A with David Smalley at our church, which was like in 2017. And one of the questions was about human suffering and, and God limiting humans. And a lot of people file limitations to sexual expression under suffering or harm now, that you're harming someone to limit their sexual expression. Um, and so 
the question was, you know, when, when David took that question and ran with it, he actually ended up defending the other side point when he talked about, I take my kids to the dentist, even though they hate it, they consider it harmful. They, they hate going. They think I'm mean for taking them. They, and so it, it's kind of like that. Do I think I, listen, I get this well enough that I don't need any outside input. I don't need there to be an expert. I'm the expert. There is no expert beyond me. Uh, when it comes to sex, I am God. Uh, there's actually poetry about that kind of stuff. Like uh, that, that I, you know, there is no God of love. I am the God of love. <clears throat> and so this idea, or am I willing to accept that, that God may be an expert beyond me and that his input is one I need to trust, like my parents taking me to the dentist. He cares more about me, even if it's not what I would always choose for myself. Yep. So anything to add to that? No, I think getting, just being honest, like you said, uh, people being honest enough to say, I am deciding for, for myself and I'm not going according to the Bible. I think when the problem that frustrates me is when people try to water it down and make it say what it doesn't say or ignore it so that they can try to have their cake and eat it too. And that's where I'm like, just, we just need to be honest. Like either God is God and his rules rule or, you know, I'm ultimately the final authority. Right. Because by today's standards, the Bible is potentially immoral. It is certainly not uh, right. not respected in today's yeah. standards when it comes to sexuality. And because so from what you're saying, it has some restrictions. Yeah, so it would be probably repressive. Yeah, would be seen as yeah, repressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we could let's let's dive into some of the things the Bible does say. So Chris started with obviously Genesis that there is male and female, and that marriage is defined as a husband and a wife. Yes. Um, uh, it's a conversation I had with somebody the other day was, um, you know, when, when Jesus says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The word wife there, what all can that word wife mean? It's the word gyne, which is the root for woman. Um, so could, for example, could, the, could by the word wife here, does Jesus also mean husband? Or by the word wife here, does Jesus also mean pet or child? Or like, is it, is it, how many different things can the word wife mean? Because Jesus is definitely defining. Hmm. So if you would say, <clears throat> well, by wife here, Jesus could mean husband. Okay. That's, you need to defend that because he didn't say husband. Like he's clearly said wife. He actually uses the female term here, the worm that means woman in the Greek. So and we get this in Mark and in Ephesians and other passages very similar to this. And so this is a this is the biblical principle and the biblical definition of marriage. And and it's not it, it is very clear. <clears throat> there is male, there is female, and marriage is when a male and a female have a bond, a covenant bond. We use the word covenant to describe this, but a covenant bond hold fast to each other. And we know from multiple other teaching, like in First Corinthians, that the two becoming one here is a reference to sexuality um, and the power, the bonding nature of sexuality. Um, so I think we have to start there. Thoughts? Anything to add? Questions about? No? Okay. So with that in case, then then why is sex restricted only to... Why, why do we think that sex is restricted only to this relationship? between a husband and a wife, because that is the traditional and biblical model. So where do we go for that? Where do we go with that? 
Well, I like to, and this is jumping ahead to Romans one, but when when Paul is describing, <clears throat> if you if you look at the parallel use of language from Genesis one and two and Romans one, there's a lot of overlap as far as he uses a lot of the same words. If you're looking at the the um, the Greek the Septuagint, yeah, uh, translation. But one of the big biggest things that he uses is when he's describing uh, one of the God gave them over. Um, you know, judgments where God gives us over to our sinful passions. He says that women abandon the natural relation um, and, and then men do the same thing and, and had unnatural relations with each other, with women and women and, and men and men. Yeah. And the words that he uses there literally in the Greek mean um, produced by nature when he says natural. And then it's literally the word krisis in Greek, which is function, specifically sexual function. So he's not even talking about desire and what you feel about yourself or what you want to do. He's just saying it's a matter of anatomy. And he just got done explaining you can look at the, cos the cosmos and figure out that there's a God. And now his argument is you can look at our anatomy and figure out who you're supposed to have sex with. Right. Um, even from just a, a plumbing aspect, so to speak. <laughs> like that, that, that's his argument there is just looking at nature before you even look at God's commands for a marriage and love and husband and wife and stuff. He's just saying what's, what's happening there on the road to perversion is people abandoning what God designed, what, what is naturally produced in their bodies. And um, I like the observation that all of us have a complete circulatory system, respiratory system, nervous system, but we only have half of a reproductive system, right? Like mine doesn't work on its own. Um, we all have, um, you know, 46 chromosomes in every cell of our body, except either sperm or egg. Right. And like, it's clearly only half of the equation. Like it needs another half. So even just biologically speaking, that was Paul's argument there that um, we're designed to fit together in a natural way. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely one of the cases made is it seems it seems quite obvious that this is the that that one of the purposes of sex is procreation and the design there is clearly requires a male and a female. Um you don't yeah. you don't get you don't get an offspring without a male and a female and therefore that case is this is seems to be if you if you understand or believe that God designed it and one of its purposes was procreation that you only get procreation through one type of sexual engagement. And therefore, that is a, as one of the several cases made biblically, is the Apostle Paul is saying it and then, and then defending it from the perspective of, because two women cannot reproduce, two men cannot reproduce. And though that's not the only purpose of marriage, of, of sexuality, it is one of them, and that should give you a hint that anything other than engaging between a man and a woman is less than the picture. So <clears throat> good. That's yeah, that's a great place to start. Okay. Yeah. You thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. I'm gonna have to go. Yeah. Thank See you, bro. Thanks. Yeah, we'll talk some more. Okay. Um, we also have, and people get, you know, can easily and understandably get up in arms about this. Sometimes there are um, because I think part of it is sometimes these have been abused is, is sometimes what are called clobber passages when it comes to sexuality. Yeah. Um, but, but in the, uh, Levitical teaching, which offers moral guidance for the people of Israel, you have a section of Leviticus 
18, 19, and 20, and especially 18 and 20, that focus on sexual behavior and guidelines around sexual behavior. Um, and so again, this is, even, even if we're going to come back and say, this is not necessarily directly a command over a New Testament Christian, yeah. it still offers insight and, and maybe, because part of the issue is Jesus uses the language that would imply some of this stuff as well, that it doesn't, it, unlike some of the things like the eating laws, and we discussed this in previous podcasts, some of the eating laws that maybe he was fulfilling, because we talked about the fulfillment of the law, the sexual morality ones, he doesn't ever seem to cancel them, and in fact seems to affirm them with his language, like with the concept of marriage being stable except for sexual immorality. Uh, the Greek word porneo, which is the is the Greek word that would be used to translate this language back in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, which restricts um, sex to um, a married, really, within a marriage. So anything outside of the marriage, which would be adultery. Um, in fact, let me just look it up. I don't want to mess with it and, and get a little bit wrong. So the first one is close relatives. So what is forbidden is sexuality between relatives, sexual expression within the family. Um now, now, I've got to stop and comment here for a minute, because sometimes people think of, especially in the church world, that the Bible's kind of squeamish, like we have to whisper the word sex, because you right. know, otherwise God might hear it and he might be freaked out by that or something. Understand, <laughs> in Leviticus 18, here we are just a few books in, and incest is directly, in, is directly engaged with and forbidden. Yeah. So incest is directly forbidden. Um, by the way, remember... Um, Remember when we talked about uh, Noah and that the uncovering of the nakedness may have been a reference to engaging sexually with his wife or something? Uh-huh. That's here. Listen to that. List, just so to go back, listen to that language. None of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. Um, she is your mother, and you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So again, when you go, okay, so what does it mean that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness? And you go, does it really just mean that he saw his dad without clothes on? Because that, that seems like something that would happen at other times, you know? That's what this, this passage is part of why I think probably what's being described there is that Ham slept with his mother. Um, and that, and that, that, at, that, that, that Noah and his wife would have yes. been in bed together and somehow Ham took advantage, while Noah was drunk, Ham took advantage of his own mother, which would be, you know, we go like, oh, that's gross. Well, yeah, and forbidden. And, and the Bible's not shying away from not addressing Not shying it. away from addressing it, right. So here you have it straight up, none of you shall approach a close relative. So that's number one. Um, and that goes down and down. That continues to be discussed under relatives, relatives, relatives. Verse 19 talks about um, uh, sex during ritual uncleanness. Yes, um, which which is a little weird for us because we don't have ritual uncleanness anymore. So it's hard for us to know how to apply this one because it's not biological in nature. It's ritual uncleanness, and that's not something that like we were. It, this one this one causes most of us who engage with this to go like I wouldn't like it's a little tough to apply. But yeah. that's all right. We can jump to the because the others are, there's plenty there's plenty in the others. Um. So the other one is your neighbor's wife. Now, neighbor's wife probably doesn't merely mean the wives of the people who live nearby. Um, it's it's a reference, again, to probably just generally adultery. Anyone you're not married to. 
Certainly it means anyone who's married to someone else. So that's forbidden. Um, and um, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a female. Um, so a male is with a woman. And by the way, you'll notice, you know, this doesn't, the, the language, the direction, for example, you shall not lie, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. That wouldn't mean only men can do that. So just like it's always, almost always a language scripturally, it says, it, it emphasizes the male behavior, yeah, yeah. but it, it is equally applicable to the female. Adultery is, so the wife, a woman can't lie with her neighbor's husband. Well, that's okay, because it doesn't, like that would right. not have been tolerated either. So, so just because it doesn't specifically, specifically say, say that, that doesn't mean that that would not have been included. And this is probably an example of that. You shall not lie with a man as a woman. And the same thing would be true, probably, you shall not lie with a woman as a man. Would, would There's no reason to think those would not both apply. I know it doesn't specifically say it, but that's, okay. Again, um, context. Yeah, exactly. So that's number four. And then number five, you shall not lie with any animal. So again, not very squeamish when you're talking about bestiality. Yeah. You shall not lie with an animal and make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. So those are the those are the language that's there, those five restrictions in regards to sexuality. And so they can be summarized relatively easily as um, you have sex with the person who you're married to, who is the opposite sex from you, and that's the restriction. Now, it is intriguing that there is little to no restriction unless you want to talk about the ritual uncleanness, um, that that there's no other restriction biblically, between a husband and a wife sexually. So it isn't the, that the Bible is anti-sex, it's that the Bible is pro-sex in marriage, and only pro-sex in marriage. So over and over and over again, sex outside of marriage, adultery, meaning sex with someone you're not married to, or at minimum sex, not sex with someone who is married to somebody else, um, is vitally important. And then we see the language of sexual morality over and over again, the Bible also forbids lust, which is to engage sexually in a possessive way with someone in your brain. Um, here you have the desire to own or possess um, something that's not yours. And I think that's good to recognize. That's forbidden. Um, it's a mental exercise. It doesn't just mean like, hey, hey, he's cute, or man, she's hot. Like that's not inherently lust. It is the decision to engage. Um, so... And, and so going back to the idea that these are clobber verses and that they are restrictive and then somebody who is engaging in, in sex that is not re, like within those restrictions, they right. see that as repressive. Right. You're okay. using these to beat me up. Yes. Um, and again, we can, we can unpack, and, and I have in several places on my personal website at chrismleg.com, the questions of like, how do we engage with these clobber passages? What do they actually teach? Does the Bible actually forbid certain sexual behaviors? Um, and obviously, as Chris Sherrod was saying, in today's world, we would say, or the worldly mindset would be, any restriction on my sexual expression that doesn't victimize someone else, um, is it is wrong right. to restrict those. Um, and so... So that, that speaks to the immoral by today's standards. Thing. That's right. Okay. And so it it's certainly when you say, hey, the Bible teaches that is it, it is immoral to engage sexually with a family member. And I say, but I want to engage sexually with a family member. 
and she or he is all into it as well. The consent is there. They, they're okay with it. I'm okay with it. Who is anyone else to tell me not to do that? Um, so long as there is consent, so long as there's not, um, you know, some kind of harm created by it. And even that conversation of, like, sometimes I think there is a lot of harm created in sexual activity yeah. that, that I think most people who have had a lot of sexual experience, when you look back and say, was there any psychological harm to your adolescent experiences of sexuality? I think most people would say, yes. Yeah, yeah, I, that was not healthy. I shouldn't, that, that, my life would probably have been better off if I hadn't done those. There was, but we still have that same attitude. Yeah, but now I get it. And we thought as adolescents, we got it. And we thought during, you know, our party phase that we got it. We think during our marriage phase, we get it. But when we look back, it's amazing how often we go, wow, I was really kind of a idiot. Right. Now, I'm not saying that that's required or everybody says that. I just, I just want to unpack what the Bible actually says about yes. it. I'm not even unpacking yet to what degree these passages apply to us. Yes. Um, but this is what the Bible actually does say um, in, in place about it. Well, are, are there other passages in the Old Testament that you would reference? These are, these are by are far these the, the most important ones. Okay. Um, obviously, you've got the Ten Commandments, which, rep- which re- specifically reference adultery Again, sex with someone outside of your marriage um, or a sex outside of someone else's marriage, um, those apply. Um, Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 9 warn a young man, because those are written to a young man, warn a young man against engaging sexually with women who they're not married to because of all the damage that can do and the danger, and that instead you should rejoice in the wife of your youth and celebrate her. And again, the language there is super sexual, and the Bible's not (laughs) repressive when it comes to talking about it. Um, and so uh, I think those are key, some interesting passages to look at. Um, in Exodus, you see it several places. In Deuteronomy, you see it several places, especially if you want to look over at Exodus 22 or Deuteronomy 22. But all of those fall under that heading of the Old Testament, what we call Old Testament, Hebrew scripture teachings about sexual uh, limitations and restrictions. And understand, the idea here isn't that God is saying hey, those are probably super fun, so don't do those. Hey, those are really exciting and illicit and awesome, so don't do those. Um, In fact, let me take a second and unpack something um, about the idea of repressive attachment to sexuality when we look at this. And and we'll probably run out of time today, and next time we can start unpacking some of the New Testament uh, conversations about what it says generally about sexuality and how whether or not some of these passages need to be applied today. Um, again, you can go back. We've looked at that some, but anyway. Um, so <clears throat> um, when we talk about sexuality as a therapist, I can un- kind of unpack that in three ways. You have illicit engagement with sexuality, erotic engagement with sexuality, and intimate engagement with sexuality. And what the Bible prizes is intimate engagement with sexuality. So let's go back. Er- ero- illicit engagement with sexuality is, is a secretive type of sexuality. It's a, a shameful or dark or hidden, that's what illicit means, is I wouldn't want anyone to know I'm doing this, right? Um, and so a lot of people, that is, there is a very great power to illicit. I mean, as humans, we're, we're wired to be, to find things that are illicit arousing. That's part of the fall, we would say. But um, so those are really hot, like, and so I, I relate those like to a house fire, um, the house burns down, but man, it's hot in the meantime. Now, all you have your ashes later, 
Um, but but at least it's hot in the meantime. And so we prize that hot. It's like methamphetamine. It's a great high that comes with it, but it's very destructive in the long run. It doesn't it does not fulfill us in the long run. If erotic sexuality, and this is sex for the sake of sex. This is what Freud would talk about, genital sex. Like this is sex is fun because sex feels good because of the way our brain and body are wired with nerve endings, right? And so that's erotic sexuality. And that's that's the fun of sex. Sure, that's the dessert at the meal. Um, that's, say, a bonfire. And so it doesn't do any destruction, but it also doesn't really build much. It doesn't invest much. It doesn't, um, it's, it's, it's kind of there and gone. And so there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem with both of those, illicit, the illicit and the erotic is, especially the erotic, there's a limit to it. Like, you can only have so many donuts, you know, and despite what I would usually say, like if you will starve to death if all you eat is donuts. When I say, man, I could live on donuts. No, I couldn't. Um, I would die of malnutrition at some point, right? Or the diabetes would kill me first. So, so there's a sense in which, yeah, the dessert is awesome, but it will only take you so far. And that's what my friend, the Chippendales stripper would have said, like, yeah, I've, I've engaged in all of this uh, eroticism and even illicit sexuality, but it's just, it, I'm, 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 I'm done. I've had, I've, you know, right. I've got the t-shirt. I'm, I'm bored. bored. Yeah. And so, um, and so I would say instead, what we want to be focusing on is the intimate sexuality. So I'm not having a secret. I'm not just having sex. I'm having a person. And this is the same person I'm going to be having sex with tomorrow or the next day or the next day and the next week and the next year and the next month. Because here's the deal, and if erotic sexuality is all we have, and that seems to be what the world seems to focus on, is one of these two. I mean, if you buy a, a you know, any, any worldly magazine and it says how to spice up your sex life, it's all going to be illicit or erotic, all of it. Like, that's going to be the focus of all of it. Intimate sexuality is saying, I, I'm having sex with this person because they're my person, and I'm their person, and I want them to know me, and I want to know them better. Um, and I want to know them sexually better. I want to know them in every way better, I intimately. I want to get to know them really better. And here's what's cool about that. Your, your role in the erotic playing field kind of goes down, starts tanking pretty fast after about 25 or 30, right? I mean, you, you, you've, they rarely hire 40 and 50-year-old Victoria's Secret supermodels. They're usually pretty young. <laughs> they, they don't, certainly in the 60s and 70s, right? And so the problem is, we all get to be, most of us get to be 40, 50, 60, 70. So how am I supposed to compete with for my wife's attention? How's my wife supposed to pe compete for my, my attention when there's all these 20-year-old hotties running around or whatever? And how is she supposed to do that? Well, the way we compete for each other's attention is by the fact that all these young, strapping, you know, Thor Greek gods or whatever, they're Thor Greek or Roman. Roman, I guess. But anyway, I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Okay. Um, it, whichever it is. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll look it up Oh, after. Norse. He's Norse. Oh, there you go. Thor is Norse. Okay, these, yeah, all these yeah, Norse yeah, gods. Yeah. yeah, obviously. Okay, so all these <laughs> Norse gods running around looking perfect. How am I supposed to keep my wife's attention for them? Well, the answer is not just her commitment to me, but her commitment to intimacy with me, and also the fact that she would have to teach one of them how to love her well. But I know. Like, I, I know what's the most important part of the house to clean, and I know what... Uh, what bugs her the most, and I know which chores have better be, it need to be done first for her to feel at peace, and and I also know her sexually after thirty years of marriage in ways that it would take somebody else thirty years of experimentation to discover, and so that is a that's a powerful advantage, right? That's a powerful bond, and that's intimate sexuality. I'm not just I'm not just engaging with her sexually because she's 
you know, some hot young thing who I, you know, whatever. I'm also engaging with my best friend for 30 years, the mother of my children, the woman who went through three miscarriages with me. Like there's an intimacy we have that is very powerful. And by the way, even as we both age and we're less significant players on the erotic playing field, you know, we're less flexible, less muscular, less what (laughs) picket, you know, as things are falling apart, we're more intimate, not less intimate. And so my grandparents were married 62 years when my grandfather finally died. And we modeled our marriage after theirs because they were, they were so romantic and so sweet and so intimate. And I believe in regards to that sexual, I think they could create more sexual energy with a look than most young couples can in a week in a cruise, like, because the intimacy was so powerful. So you can see why the Bible would, would encourage that because it gives hope to us as we get older and as we lose our step and as we, that there's someone who would go, I'm choosing you because I know you and I know you because I choose you. Not just because you're able to compete with everybody else on the erotic playing field and certainly not just because you can make things as hot as they can possibly be. It is, no, no, we're together because we're, we're an us and we walk on each other's island and I know you and you know me. And so what's, here's what's wild. Once again, it shows that the biblical model of I'm going to choose one person and I'm going to invest all of that fire in that person. That becomes like a hearth fire or even a, a stove fire, you know, an old potbelly stove that you cook on and you heat with and you, all these cool things that you do with it, you know, you make your tea and your coffee on it. And, and that's the heat. That's the sexuality. I've never been able to find anyone to find this for me. If there's someone out here who could, I'd love to hear it. But does, does 40 or 50 years of a hearth fire every night eventually create more heat than a house, than a one, than a four hour house fire does. I've got to think eventually it does it, that eventually it additively creates more heat. Interesting. Um, but anyway, yeah. so this is the picture that Bible creates is of an yes. intimacy, a lifelong choosing. So then why, why does culture, is it just simply like, it's a lie. That, it is that, a lie. That so one is buys into like, okay, well, but no, that's not, that's not actually what, we want. Yeah. What we want is I want it really fast. I want it to burn bright. And then I want to move on to the next house fire. Right. Exactly. Burn you know? down somebody, another right, house. Right, right, right. Um, I think there's a couple of things to that. And one is the, the, the version of evil that we talk about where there is an enemy in the world who has a philosophy behind that, that he is pushing. Separate conversation for another time. That would actually be a good one is the whole devil conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think that's part of it. And I think part of it is, so there is an evil, a push towards evil that's always going to be here. But I think the other one is what you just said. It's it's easier. It's quicker. In yeah. the short term, it's hotter. The other one's hard work. Right. Um, how do I, Right, yeah. Because the, the intimacy comes through the years of rearing children. That's and, right. And fighting. Yeah, to, even, to, even conflict. Know, for it, for yes. intimacy and miscarriages. And like yes. all of that, like it is not glamorous in that way, I That's guess. Right. It's That's not, right. It's not easy. It doesn't attract a crowd like a house fire does. Yeah. It's not as hot in the moment as a house fire is. But what the problem is, like is always the case in the worldly mindset is, the problem is you find yourself at 30 and there's no investment or you don't know how to invest or you don't know what to do next. And so... What we see, and, and men and women out there, you know, who are, who are listening, who are deconstructing and going, see, God, God is so restrictive and repressive about sexuality. That's proof that either he doesn't exist and that this is just a control mechanism for, you know, I mean this facetiously, for white men, 
right? But even though we've already unpacked that is not at all accurate, but, right. but like this is just a control mechanism, um, which doesn't make sense by the way that, that lost world powerful men would say, Hey, let's restrict sexual behavior. No, it doesn't. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, uh, people in control don't restrict sexual behavior. That's, that's why cults never do that. Um, yeah, yeah we're all about the Bible except for that part. Um, but the, uh, but this, this, Instead, I think that's part of it. But I think the main one is for the flesh, that part of us, that little kid in us that just wants to feel something now. I'm cold and I want to feel warm. I'm tired and I want to feel rested. I'm hungry and I want to feel full. It's just an immediate gratification. And there's an immediate gratification in this. There's an instantaneous, I can feel good. My body likes it. My brain dopamine likes it. Yeah. The problem is it's going to later is when you have to pay the piper. Down the line. And when you don't have an intimate, you is when you're going through a divorce after 20 years of marriage or seven years of marriage because uh, because you didn't invest in each other. You were just what you could get, and and so now we're strangers to each other. We don't know each other well. There's nothing sexual about our marriage because we really don't know each other that well. I might as well choose somebody else. This guy's doesn't know how to love me well. This one doesn't know how to love me well, and and it creates this pattern of that's how you end up with a 40 year old man going, man, I just don't want to. I've already done this. I'm, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm tired. And, and so, but teaching him, by the way, this concept of intimate sexuality, you're engaging with your wife sexually because you want to please her. doesn't matter whether you're getting anything out of it. What if you just worry about creating the most intimately powerful physical and sexual experience for her each yeah. time you engage sexually? Well, it turns out that's inspiring and arousing. I mean, yeah. when, when you're someone who you cr- you're crazy about, and you're giving them a good time sexually. It turns out that's pretty fun for you too, and it's gonna your 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 hormones and stuff are gonna follow that, and that's a pure expression of yeah. I'm enjoying this sexual ex- experience because I enjoy you so much. Yeah, and I, I guess my my other question is because we're talking about what I mean. You can kind of extrapolate this out, this idea of sexual immorality, because you can have what we're talking about heterosexual immorality. Right. And so, I mean, I, I don't know if you've dealt with this, but like open marriages. Right. I don't, I, to me, there has to be a time I'm sure where it's like, Hey, this is a good idea at the beginning. And then yeah. it's like, this is not a good idea because over time, like you're saying that, cause to me, what an open marriage and correct me if I'm wrong, Yeah, but it's like, it would only probably be focusing on the illicit or the erotic. Right. And so if you don't have that intimacy, then yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know my, if you would my say exper- anything. Oh, I, my experience of, of all of that has been, um, and, and I know it's limited. Yeah. As a counselor, I only see certain percentage of the population. So typically if I see someone in marriage counseling, it means it's not going well. Right. So if, if there's an open, if there are open marriages that are just, you know, loving it, I'm not seeing them anyway. So I've got to acknowledge yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. But the, in counseling, what we see is the things that create a healthy marriage are typically experienced in a, in a way that is negative in regards to things like open marriages. They just don't, it doesn't help. It makes, it often can make things much more difficult. Huh. So anyway, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, yeah, I, that's my experience is that we, we've seen, we regularly see people who are in open marriages and the reason we're seeing them is because it's so broken. Okay. 
Now, again, there may be others that I don't know about that yeah. are out there. But and I'm not trying program. to deviate too far from, you know, what we're talking about. I, I do want to, I don't know, I think it's important that we're talking about this, especially as we lay groundwork for what is sex, what is God's intention and design for sex, right. as we then talk about what is what is twisted according to what the Bible says. Right. So that's what we're going to... I mean, I guess we just plan on moving that into that in the New Testament. What does it say about sexual immorality? And we're not focusing at this stage yet on any any one of these various ways right. um, that the Bible teaches. And it is understandable that someone who says, but I've chosen this lifestyle, or I'm wired for this arousal uh, style, or this is what I find arousing, or this is what I find interesting, to say, well, that's, what's, that's a bummer that the Bible is calling me out is that I'm not allowed to engage in that sexual behavior. And so it's natural that we would then look and see like, okay, is there a way that the Bible doesn't say that? And so I don't begrudge people that at all when people, you know, it's like, hey, I'm looking for a way for the Bible to not say these things so that I can do what sounds fun to me anyway. I think that's a normal thing to do. We also just have to come at it humbly saying, but if I get there and I have in an honest conversation realize, no, it doesn't allow that then, okay, then we need to, I just need to choose to follow Scripture as my authority if I'm going to be a Christ follower. So, um, yeah, we're running into this, and this is going to be, I want us to do this right, not jump ahead to, to those first answers that people want to do, um, which, again, I understand that. And it's it's unavoidable sometimes for Scripture to not be offensive. I certainly find it offensive all the time. Um it offend, it, it, I'm not allowed to do the things I want to do a lot of the time scripturally. And so um, I get that, even though it, it seems that sounds like an easy answer, but it's I don't think it ever yeah. is. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reconstructed Faith. If you enjoyed what you heard or were challenged, please leave us a review. It'll help other people find us. If you have questions or a topic you'd like to hear discussed, shoot me an email at info at southspring.org. Reconstructed Faith is a resource of South Spring Baptist Church. Remember, don't give up, trust God, search for answers.